I'll see you then. See ya. God, long ago, faithful women proclaimed the good news of Jesus' resurrection, and the world was changed forever. Teach us to keep faith with them, that our witness may be as bold, that our love be as deep, and our faith as true. In Jesus' name, amen. Oh, my gosh. So, the O.C., is one of my favorite TV shows of all time. And most people are like, so see, I don't know this kid. And then everybody that's young, younger than I am is probably thinking, that's like just a terrible teen soap opera. But The O.C. is it's an amazing show if you haven't seen it. And what the scene was right behind us was the end of season one. And the backstory of The O.C. is that the... Uh, the guy driving off with the girl, Ryan Atwood, was adopted at the very beginning of the show. He is in juvie, and he's had a rough home life, and Sandy Cohen, the, uh, the man that comes in to comfort his wife there at the end, uh, they have brought Ryan into their home, and they have adopted Ryan into their life, and then season one goes by, and uh, a series of events happen, and he has to leave them. 
And what's fascinating for, for us this morning is that Ryan is initially a source of danger. He is the outsider coming into the pristine life of the, the rich and famous of Orange County. And he comes in as this, uh, you know, thug kid from Chino who's had, you know, just a rough life. He was stealing cars, and now he's coming into this seemingly perfect world. But what you find out in the show is that uh, things aren't what they seem in the OC. And what's so fascinating about the transition from the very first episode to uh, where you see uh, Kirsten there crying uh, to the song Hallelujah, which, oh, can we just say it's such a great song. Such a great song. Jeff Buckley, pure genius. One take, one take. He was in the studio singing that. One take by himself. Unbelievable. Anyway, I digress. So the OC, Kirsten is, is there crying at the end of season one. Well, at the beginning of season one, she does not want this outsider in at all. But what becomes the source of danger becomes Kirsten's salvation. The outsider is the site of her salvation. And that is what we're going to talk about this morning. Where is the site of our salvation? So before we get going, we're going to break off into our small groups. And I want you guys to talk about where is God? Where do you meet God? Where do you find Christ? You might think, that's a weird question. And if you're not a Christian, you might think, that's a really weird question. I don't know how to answer that. Well, good. Talk about it. If you don't know how to answer it, just hash it out. So take a couple of minutes, talk about where do you find Christ? Where do, where do we meet God? All right, and then we'll, we'll come back and talk. we've been going through the Acts of the Apostles the last five weeks, and we've found that people meet Christ in all sorts of strange places. Uh, anybody want to share uh, what they came up with or what they're float, floating around? Nice. Alright, so today, yeah, today we're going to we're going to go through a story. So last week we did Acts 16, 1 through 15. Today's lectionary picks up right where we left off, 16, 16 through 34. So if you would, grab a Bible. There's uh, Bibles in the few backs in front of you. Uh, if you want to follow along, we're going to flip to uh, 16, 16 through 34 uh, and pick up where we left off. So if you, if you were here last week, you remember uh, Paul, Silas, Luke, Timothy, they are now in Philippi. Philippi being uh, modern-day Europe, uh, Greece, and Lydia is now starting the first uh, church that we know of in Europe. So she has a small community of purple cloth sellers, and she, at the end of uh, 15, welcomes Luke, Paul, Timothy, Silas into her home, and this is where we pick up our story, 1660. One day, as we were going to the place set aside for prayer, so uh, we, we assume that's the uh, same synagogue uh, that they found uh, Lydia at last week, we encountered a slave girl, we uh, being Luke talking here. She made a lot of money for her owners as a fortune teller, assisted by some sort of occult spirits. She began following us, shouting, These men are slaves like me, but slaves of a most high God. They will proclaim to you the way of liberation. The next day we passed by and she did the same thing. And again, on the following days, 
One day, Paul was really annoyed, so he turned and spoke to the spirit that was enslaving her. Paul says, I order you in the name of Jesus, God's anointed, come out of her. And it came right out. But when her owners realized that she would be worthless now as a fortune teller, they grabbed Paul and Silas and dragged them into the open market area and presented them to the authorities. The slave owner said, These men are troublemakers, disturbing the peace of our great city, Philippi. They are from some Jewish sect and they promote foreign customs that violate our Roman standards of conduct. The crowd joined in with insults and insinuations, prompting the city officials to strip them naked in public so that they could be beaten with rods. They were flogged mercilessly, and then they were thrown into a prison cell. The jailer was ordered to keep them in the strictest supervision. The jailer complied, first restraining them in ankle chains and then locking them up in a secure cell in the center of the jail. Picture this. It's midnight, and darkness uh, falls on the cell. Paul and Silas, after surviving the severe beating, aren't moaning. They aren't groaning. They are praying and singing hymns to God. The prisoners in adjoining cells are wide awake, listening to them pray and sing. Suddenly, the ground begins to shake, and the prison foundations begin to crack. You can hear the sound of jangling chains and the squeaks of the uh, cell doors opening. Every prisoner realizes that his chains have become unfastened. And the jailer wakes up and runs into the jail, and his heart, his heart sinks as he sees the doors have all swung open, he is sure that his prisoners have escaped and he knows this will mean certain death for him, so he pulls out his sword to commit suicide. But at that moment, Paul sees what is happening and shouts at the top of his lungs, Wait, man! Don't harm yourself! We're all here. None of us have escaped. The jailer sends his assistants to get some torches and rushes them into the cell of Paul and Silas. He falls on his knees before them, trembling. Then he brings them outside. Jailer, gentlemen, please tell me... What must I do to be liberated? Paul and Silas says, Just believe. Believe in the ultimate King Jesus. And not only will you be rescued, but your whole household will be as well. The jailer brings them to his home, and they have a long conversation with a man and his family. Paul and Silas explain the message of Jesus to them all. The man washes their wounds and feeds them, and then they baptize the man and his family. The night ends with Paul and Silas in the jailer's home, sharing a meal together, and the whole family rejoicing they have come to faith in God. What a strange story. What a strange and interesting story. I feel like, like most of our stories in Acts, so interesting, so bizarre, and always ending with some sort of home-cooked meal, it seems. Where do we meet Christ? It's such an interesting story here with uh, Paul and Silas picking up uh, in Philippi, you assume still living with Lydia in her home church, but they're going down to the river uh, where they have this place of prayer, whether it was a synagogue or not, um, and they encounter a slave girl, a slave, not just in, in, any slave girl, a slave girl that is, is what? What does she do? She's a fortune teller. This is, this is interesting because at the time you would have had uh, this would have put her in a sort of special status as far as slaves would go. So I don't know if, if you remember last week, but you had the tiers of the classes of Roman society. And although this girl is a slave girl, um, most people would suspect that if you had some sort of special gift like this, like being able to be a fortune teller, that you would have had some regard. You would have been uh, better off than most slaves, which makes this story sort of interesting because when Paul and Timothy and Luke encounter her on this road, if they liberated her from her fortune telling, you know, Paul, it's funny, because 
Paul is annoyed, right? It's this this word annoyed. He's like, okay, why? You know, it's Paul. He shouldn't he shouldn't get annoyed like that. But what's so fascinating is this passage has to assume for us that they help her, right? And helping this girl would have required much more than the text actually gives us information about. Because according to the text, Paul removes the the spirit from this girl, but her story ends there, right? What, What happens to this girl, this very interesting fortune teller that is so annoying? You know, I just, I imagine, and I would hope that Lydia and her purple cloth merchants are, are there alongside this girl because if you took away her gift of fortune telling, yes, you removed her spirit, but you would have actually hurt her in her life. She would have been worse off uh, being a regular slave. I mean, who knows what would have happened to her had she uh, had her spirit removed but still stayed under the ownership of these, uh, these merchants that were using her. And so the text doesn't say what happens to this girl, but in order to, for her to really be liberated, it would have taken a faith community to come alongside her and to help her and transition her into their faith community. Um, there are several extra biblical sources that uh, give clues to us that uh, this sort of thing happened uh, in and around uh, the first century, that people were taken into communities. Uh, but it's just something to think about that, this girl that was liberated would have needed to be brought into a faith community to be cared for, to be comforted. And I think it's a challenge for us today to, to really think about, okay, when we help people, when we go outside of these walls, uh, are we really helping? Are we really comforting in the ways that are uh, holistic? And the text continues. So Paul and... Uh, Paul and Silas get themselves in a bit of trouble, as you do when you mess with the uh, financial systems of the time. So, of course, Paul, yeah. So Paul, by taking the spirit away, he threatens their economic way of life. And uh, not only economics, but this would have been a political act as well, because what, is, what do the uh, officials say uh, to him? Uh, our uh, great city. So our Roman standards of conduct. So what they're doing right here is an economic move, and it is a political move. The crowd joined them in insinuations, prompting city officials in the public square. They were beaten and flogged mercilessly. I can't say that word there. So they were sent to jail. And I think a lot of times when I've heard this passage, you usually only talk about the, the miraculous uh, chains breaking and the jailer coming to uh, faith. And a lot of the emphasis is put on uh, the earthquake and how magnificent of a moment that this would have been. Yes, but I think that this misses the point. And if we, this is why I love going through the book of Acts because the whole trajectory of each story that we've gone through so far gives us an insight onto what Luke is trying to get at here, that there's always a miraculous element to the, to the narrative. Something interesting happens with the Spirit of God, God moving in people's lives, yes. 
So that is a part of this narrative element. But the miraculous is never the point to Luke's narrative at all, right? There's always something else. There's always something communal. There's always a uh, binding together and a rounding of the narrative. And so here we, uh, we meet Paul and Silas in the darkness of their cell. So they aren't moaning and groaning. They're praying and singing hymns to God. Adjoining in their cells, uh, they are wide awake, um, listening to them sing. So they are being uh, witnesses to the to the other people there, which is a, which is an important thing to take. But what I want to focus on this morning is what happens right as uh, Paul and Silas uh, speak to the j- uh, jailer. So uh, the jailer sends his assistants to get some torches and rushes into the cell of Paul and Silas. He falls on his knees before them, and he's scared, scared. And he says, tell me what I must do, what I must do to be liberated, which is such a fascinating uh, play on words that Luke is doing here. They're in jail, and the jailer is saying, what must I do to be liberated? And Paul says, just believe the ultimate king and not only will you be rescued, but your whole household. So Luke is playing with this, this, uh, with the words here. But then the fascinating point: Paul and Silas explain to them the message of Jesus, which really mirrors the uh, end of the passage from last week, where they're down uh, in the uh, synagogue by the river and they meet Lydia, and Lydia is at that point the site of their salvation on that day, and they and they get baptized as well. But here's fascinating. Paul and Silas explain the message to, of Jesus to them all. So that would have been the jailer and his household. And then the man washes their wounds and feeds them. What just happened? The man becomes Jesus, right? So Luke is, is saying this person becomes Jesus. He is now the one washing their wounds and feeding them. He becomes Jesus, washing the feet of the disciples. The night ends with Paul and Silas in the jailer's home, sharing a meal together, and the whole family rejoicing to the faith in God. Flip over with me. We're going to hammer this point in, uh, because I really think it's important for us to examine where is it that we meet Christ. And this is a theological shift for us, because when I was growing up, it was always, oh, if you believed in God, it's great, you get baptized, and then you're supposed to go out and tell other people about God so they can believe in God and get baptized. And I think the theological shift here it, that Luke is over and over and over and over again uh, telling us in very different ways is that, no, the Spirit moves. The side of salvation is in the person that you don't think it will be in every time. The side of salvation is going to be for Paul. Where was the side of salvation? Paul thinks that he is going to do God's work by going and uh, rounding up these early Christians and throwing them in jail. That was like his mission. He was doing the Lord's work, as we tend to really zealously think in church today, that we are doing the Lord's work, and Jesus stops him in his tracks. And Paul's side of salvation is in the very people that he was trying to persecute. That was the side of his salvation. Uh, we have several times that uh, Luke has taken us through uh, where women are starting churches. Uh, women in the first century 
who are not uh, looked highly upon a lot of times are the site of the church's salvation. And at this point, the jailer, the one that's part of Roman uh, persecution, is now the one that becomes Jesus and is washing the disciples' feet. The other becomes the site of our salvation. Um, And I have this quote, uh, We are not good news for the other. Rather, those we consider outsiders are the very site of our own salvation. So flip over uh, real quick to Matthew 25, if you still have your Bible out. Matthew 25, 31 through 46. We see that this is something that not only Luke picks up, but Matthew does as well in following uh, the story of Jesus. Here we pick up Jesus uh, telling a little parable. Jesus says, When the Son of Man comes in all of his majesty, accompanied by throngs of heavenly messengers, his throne will be wondrous. All the nations will assemble before him, and he will judge them, distinguishing them from one another as shepherd isolates sheep from the goats. He will put some the sheep at his right hand and some the goats at his left. The king will say to those on his right, Come here, you beloved, you people who my father has blessed. Claim your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you from the beginning of creation. You shall be richly rewarded. For when I was hungry, you fed me. For when I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. I was alone as a stranger, and you welcomed me into your homes and into your lives. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? I was naked, and you gave me clothes to wear. I was sick, and you uh, you tended my needs. And I was in prison, and you comforted me. Sounds familiar. Even the righteous will uh, not have achieved perfect understanding and will not recall these things. The righteous, perhaps, being the Pharisees and the people who are religious at the time. And the righteous say, Master, when did we give you? Uh, when did we find you uh, hungry and give you food? When did we find you thirsty and slake your thirst? When did we find you a stranger and welcome you in, or find you naked and clothe you? When did we find you sick and nurse you to health? When did we visit you when you were in prison? And Jesus responds, I tell you this: whenever you saw a brother or sister hungry or cold, whatever you did to the least of these, you did to me. The slave is the site of our salvation. The jailer is the site of our salvation and at that he will turn to his left hand and he'll say get away from me you are despised from my father whom you have cursed claim your inheritance the pits of flaming hell Gehenna would have been that word where the devil and his minions will suffer for I was starving and you left me with no food I was dry and thirsty and you left me to struggle with nothing to drink when I was alone as a stranger you turned away from me when I was Pitifully naked, you left me unclothed. When I was sick, you gave me no care. And when I was in prison, you did not come to comfort me. And they go on and say, Master, when do we see you hungry and thirsty? When do we see you uh, homeless or excluded? When do we see you without clothes? When do we see you sick or in jail? And he says, whenever you saw a brother hungry or cold, whenever you saw a sister weak without friends, whenever you saw the least of these and ignored their suffering, you also ignored me. The slave is the site of our salvation. The other, the one that we think in your mind, whether it's a boss, whether it's a people group, whoever we assume to be the other, that is the very site of our salvation. Sarah mentioned the the giving bags, and I think that's such a great example of how we go out from this place into the world 
not as somebody with something to give to somebody that doesn't have the something that we have. It's the fact that we have to go out in order to meet Christ. We, we don't have Christ going to take to some, you know, poor person who uh, needs our bag of toiletries and needs Christ. No, we are the very ones that need to meet Christ. And in order to do that, we have to go out and engage. We have to, we have to find constantly the site of our salvation. Uh, so much Christianity, uh, like I harp on all the time, is bound up in is one, one experience. But what we see Luke doing here over and over and over again, that a life following Christ means a life following Christ. It involves points where uh, we, don't get the, we don't get the point, we don't understand when we're confused, but we keep going, we keep following. We have to go out into the world and to meet the very person we probably don't want to meet in order to meet Christ. And that is the shift, that is the theological shift that is really, really hard to make. Uh, but I think is our, our greatest uh, gift and our greatest challenge is that we, we don't have something to give. We really need to be given Christ over and over and over again. And I think what Luke's telling us, I think what Jesus is telling us in the parable is the same thing, that we have to, we have to engage. We have to engage the person, even if it's like last week where Lydia puts herself at risk by uh, being hospitable to Timothy, Luke, Paul, Silas, by inviting them into her home. We, we looked at that word hospitable uh, and hospitality usually involved an element of danger. And here we have a jailer at the very end working for the Roman oppressors, doing the very same thing. That would have gotten him in big trouble. I mean, he's uh, fearful that his uh, prisoners are going to somehow get out and escape. And not only do they do that, he invites them over to his house. That would have put him in an extremely uh, compromised uh, position as a person in uh, first century Rome. And sometimes, in order to meet Christ, we have to put ourselves in... Uh, uncomfortable situations, and that's really difficult to do. We are not good news for the other. Rather, for those who we consider outsiders are the very sight of our salvation. So may we too find our sight of salvation this week and going forward in whoever we consider to be on the fringe, the margins, who we think is the outsider, for they will be where we meet Christ. Let's pray. Loving and living God, Jesus, the movements of your mysterious spirit always challenge us and teach us something subversive, unexpected, painful, challenging. Uh, they always point us in the direction of the other. They always point us in the person who we consider in our own minds, in our own worlds, in our own communities, in our own workplaces to be the outsider, the person that we don't want to talk to, the person that really bugs us, the person that annoys us. But we find that they are the site of our salvation, that we are to follow you, we are to follow you into those places. We are to follow you to the margins because that is where we know we will find you. 
And if we have any hope of salvation, that is where we must go. So Lord, we thank you for your message, for your challenge. Would you continually love us and push us to where you are to teach us to keep faith with the women who so faithfully taught us in the way of Jesus in the first century, today, our mothers in our homes, our brothers, our sisters at work, that our witness would be as bold and our love as deep and our faith as true. In Jesus' name we pray. And everybody said amen.